You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Tal Hever Shabowski. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So the Medem Library was founded in 1929 by a group of Jewish immigrants, mostly from Poland, socialist immigrants that were members of the Bund Party. The Bund Party at the time was maybe the most important political organization among Jews. It was founded in 1897, so at the same time as the Zionist movement, and they were both, let's say, concurring movements. And um, the members of this party here in Paris basically founded a club for their members and a library, and it was serving their needs. And throughout the years, of course, there were many Yiddish libraries in Paris at the time, about a dozen Yiddish libraries. And the Medellin Library was at the time not the biggest one, not at all the biggest one. Miraculously, or with the help of the librarians at the time, the, the books of the library were saved during the destruction. So uh, the Gestapo actually came to, to confiscate the books, and the books were hidden in a cellar. And that way, 3,000 books at the time were saved and were not taken by the Nazis. And then after the war, the books were recovered and the library opened again and then reopened in October 44. And it reopened not just as a library and a club, but also as a meeting place for survivors, a place in which uh, Jews all from all around Europe, because a lot of Jews came to Paris after the war when they were looking for relatives or looking for a job or looking for help people who didn't know French necessarily, they knew that there was a couple of Yiddish-speaking institutions. Uh, one of them was the Medem Library, and they came to look for help. It served also this function. Uh, the Medem Library was part of a network, let's say, of solidarity uh, among survivors uh, after the war. And a lot of people in my family and among my friends, when they heard that I study Yiddish and that even later that I made it my livelihood, I've become a, a director of Yiddish Center, they're very surprised. Yiddish? How come Yiddish? Why Yiddish? Even they laugh sometimes, they are very surprised. And I think that what I'm answering to them is that there's nothing surprising about the fact that I study or speak Yiddish. The real surprise, the real question that has to be asked is how come my parents, this last generation, didn't? speak Yiddish, because for hundreds of years, if you consider my family, for hundreds of years, my family on both sides, on all sides, they spoke Yiddish for hundreds of years. And just one generation, the generation of my parents, decided not to speak it. They decided to switch to another language. And then their child comes back to Yiddish. If you look at it as a graph, (laughs) I am not the surprise. I'm a continuation of something that makes total sense. The big question is, how is it possible that in the 20th century, in Europe, in Russia, in the United States, of course also in Israel, in so many societies, the vernacular languages of Jews, in particular Yiddish, which was the most important vernacular language of Jews before the war, Remember that about 95% of all Jews spoke Yiddish before the war. Okay, that was not just one language. That was the language of the Jews. Of course, there were others, but that was the majority. And the, the great question is, in what historical circumstances brought to the fact that it diminished so rapidly? And of course, 
the Holocaust, of course, the genocide, the Nazi genocide, but not only, right? Because Yiddish was replaced by English in the United States and by French here, and Yiddish was discriminated against and oppressed in Russia, and uh, you have uh, exactly the same generation that stopped speaking Yiddish corresponds to the generation also of my parents in Israel, where also Yiddish was discriminated against and treated as not a language worth speaking and replaced by Hebrew. So you have this, if you want, a global phenomenon of contempt and neglect and ignoring of this language in so many places. And of course, it all began with the genocide, but after the genocide and the, the great immigration of the survivors to other places in the world, Yiddish was completely brought down. And it seems like it's lost. But once you learn the language, you get this realization, nothing is lost. It's all there. It's just waiting on the shelf. And you just need to learn the language and find yourself uh, other people who are interested. And you, this world exists in a very real way. And it's here. We just need to open the book. And the book carries this culture. The books carry this civilization. Not a place, not a state, not demographics, not yes. statistics. So it doesn't matter if there were 13 million Yiddish speakers before the war and now they are just one or maybe a bit more million speakers. It doesn't matter. Even if there would be just 12 speakers, if there won't be any speakers, mm -hmm. the books are there. So the culture is saved in that sense. And this is, in a nutshell, this is what we do here. There's some kind of a culture that exists not in place, but in language. And it's an identity or community that does not need to have passports, does not need to have a minister of foreign affairs. It doesn't need to have an army, of course. It doesn't need to have a flag. It cannot be taken from you and then. And it cannot be taken from us, exactly, exactly, because it's diasporic. Mm -hmm. And whenever something is defined by boundaries, mm -hmm. be it spatially or temporally, whenever you define something in boundaries, then it can be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. So that's also, by the way, why I, I don't like when people speak about Yiddish in terms of life and death. Mm -hmm. Like, is Yiddish alive? Is Yiddish dead? Is it being reborn? I think that life is precisely this limited form of existence that is defined by being what is between birth and death. And if you think of culture in terms of life, then you actually accept that it's going to die because everything living is going to die. But Yiddish cannot die. Culture, actually, in my opinion, cannot yeah. die because yeah. it never lived. There are a lot of stereotypes uh -huh. that are connected to Yiddish oh. as if it's a language of humor, mm -hmm. a language of the street, mm -hmm. a language that has more affection than other languages. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, of course, if people are exposed just to jokes, mm -hmm. then they think that the language is a language of humor. And if they remember words that their mother used to tell them, then they mm -hmm. think it's a very affectionate language. But actually, what we are trying to say is that Yiddish is just like any other language. It has affectionate words, it has humor, it mm -hmm. has everything. But 
instead of reducing it and thinking that Yiddish is one thing or Yiddish is this neatly sweet uh, oh, I, I think that was yes. the, the action that you got there uh, Yiddish is a language of high literature Yiddish is a language mm-hmm. that you can express everything in this you can speak about uh, engineering in Yiddish mm-hmm. it's a language of love and a language of political debate it's a language of philosophy mm-hmm. and of mathematics you can use it for everything if you look at the new people especially young people coming to the language in Europe The overwhelming majority are non-Jews. And this is a great question. Why are they interested in Yiddish? Now, in Germany and in Poland, you could say, okay, this is a question of feelings of guilt. That's usually the explanation. First of all, I don't think it's true for Poland. I don't think that the motivation for young Polish to learn Yiddish, and this is the most important country today in terms of young people coming to the language, I don't think it's guilt. I think it's something else. I think there's a true, deep cultural and historical understanding of those young Poles that Polish culture cannot be separated from Yiddish culture. Jews made up such a, a huge proportion of Polish society before the war I think that Krakowy had even more than a third before the war were Jews. Yiddish was almost an official language in some of those places. Also non-Jews in Warsaw, many spoke Yiddish because that was, there were like hundreds of thousands of Yiddish speakers then. And for hundreds of years, Yiddish was a part of Polish culture. And these young Poles, I don't think that they have different questions than my own questions. They also have questions of identity. And they try to understand what is Polish identity. And the answers that they get, for example, from the government maybe are not uh, enough for them. And they think of Yiddish as a missing component of understanding where they came from. And they come to Yiddish as a sort of coming back to their own identity. I think that this is something very particular for Poles. They understand Yiddish not as something exotic, not as something alien, although they, they may be Catholic. It's, it's amazing. It just sucks you in. You just want to learn Yiddish all the time. That's what happened to me. So it's really intellectual curiosity. It's people of, of great erudition that come here. And the other aspect, I called it the political. I think that there are a lot of people today who look for models for identity that are not oppressive and exclusive. If you think of it, national, religious, but even gender identities are basically exclusive identities. So these are identities that are based on dichotomies, on oppositions. French is by definition not German. Of course, you can be both. But the idea of nationalism is French is not German and French is not Italian, etc. Whereas linguistic identities, what's so amazing about language as an identity is that it can be accumulated. I cannot decide now that I'm becoming Italian. I cannot. But I can learn Italian. I cannot decide to become Catholic and remain Jewish. It doesn't work like this. Either I'm Catholic or I'm Jewish. But if I'm Catholic, I can learn Yiddish, and I can be part of this Yiddish land. 
without renouncing anything. Some people thought that Berlin represents some kind of a morbid uh, wish to come to the place from which the genocide started, right? As if going to the center of it all or to, to, to the forbidden place, some kind of a taboo breaking, uh, maybe there's some, something to, into it. But I think that a much more profound answer of why some Jews, and uh, not just Israelis, actually, choose Berlin today, and me also, and this is something that I understood after the fact. It's not something that was conscious, I understood it later. Look, Hitler tried to kill other Jews. Hitler and Nazism tried to completely destroy Jewish culture in Europe. And to go now and live in Berlin as a Jew, and to create as a Jew, to create culture in Hebrew, in Yiddish, is maybe the most subversive thing to history. History tried to remove us, to take us out, to tell us to go somewhere else. And what would it help to do another commemoration? What would it help to, to say never again? What would it help to, to, I mean, at the end of it, the most, the, like symbolically, the strongest thing that you can do is to say, I'm going to Berlin and I'm going to create Jewish culture there. Yes. And when I, I notice how I answer that when people ask me, my family or some people would ask me, how come you can create in Hebrew or in Yiddish in Berlin of all places? And my answer was, well, exactly. That's exactly where Hebrew and Yiddish have to return. That's exactly where you need to create. It's easy to create in Hebrew or in Yiddish, uh, I don't know, That space in Israel. is created for you, but you're saying we're still here. We've exactly, yeah. exactly. I won't go where history wants me to go. Mm-hmm. I won't go because some people decided in a room that, okay, all Jews are going to go that, that place and are not going to be in this place anymore. Mm. No. Yes. I'm saying this is a place that belongs to Jewish culture as much as it belongs to many other cultures and as much as many other places belong to Jewish cultures belong to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't accept this idea that Jews should not be allowed to create a Jewish culture in, in Europe, in Germany or in Berlin. We have this term in Hebrew, it's called tikkun, in Yiddish tikkun, it's called uh, it's, uh, reparation. Mm-hmm. This idea that something is, bro- the world is broken basically. Mm-hmm. And the role of every person is to try to repair it. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.